Welcome back, everybody, to this week's edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week. It is March the 12th, 2015. And as you know, St. Patrick's Day is right around the corner. So today's show, we're going to be uh, dedicating it to the Irish and the influence they've had on sports and billiards in particular in the United States. We'll be talking a little bit more about that in just a minute. But first, we're going to go ahead and hand you over to the One Minute Pool Instructor. Hi, I'm Scott Lee. I'm Randy G. And welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. This week we're going to talk about the difference, if there is any, between aiming and focusing. Aiming and focusing. So what do you think the difference is, Randy? Well, first of all, there's a huge difference there between is. the two. Um, yeah, let's, let's just break it down. It's real simple. Um, let's start with aiming. <clears throat> aiming is described as a mental process. All right, excuse me, aiming is, I'm sorry, Scott. And is described as a physical process. It is. And, and it's the physical process that our body, our eyes, our hand, our cue stick goes through from the standing position all the way down into the shooting position. Everything we do in aiming is physical. That's a great point, Randy, because a lot of people think that aiming starts when they stand down on the table. No, no, that's when aiming is putting her over with. That's Man, right. All I do is recheck my aim there. I've done all my aiming in my standing position. Right? So, so aiming is, is physical. Now, focusing, if aiming is physical, then focus has to be mental. All right? Yes. <clears throat> focus is our ability. In those seconds that we do our warm-ups and our hand is on the table and we're going to strike the cue ball, let's call them 8 to 10 seconds. It's the ability not to let any outside source creep in, or for that matter, any internal source uh, disrupt us. It's in the flow or, or autopilot. So um, focus is the mental process to stay in your subconscious for eight to 10 seconds. Getting back to the aiming thing, I see a lot of people start their aiming process from the standing position, but they're too close to the shot. You need, don't you think you need to back away from the table a few feet to really uh, get a good grasp of, of uh, how you want to line up and then find a way to step into the shot? Well, let me, uh, let me be a devil, devil's advocate. Maybe some aiming systems require us to stand in a different position or at a different distance. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any of those, but maybe some of them do. I know that the six or seven that I'm able to teach, we stand tall, we stand back, we find what we have to look for, and then we walk into that line of shot. So, yeah, I'm with you. Um, I think you got to stand back and get your visualization of aiming done first before you do the physical part of aiming. And then the mental part is always subconscious. And so it would, it would stand to reason then that the aiming part of the process is much more um, engaging and lasts longer than the focusing part. Focusing oh, is just absolutely. the last few seconds. Aiming might start the minute you start chalking your cue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, aiming is a long process. It doesn't have to be, but but let's say aiming is not only a mental but physical, but it's a process that is all engaging, because everything we do in pool is about pocketing another ball generally. Yeah. So aiming is is utmost important. Cue ball is only secondary after aiming. Right. And so I think the biggest mistake that most people don't realize is that they make their aiming decisions standing up and then when they get down into their stance they start second guessing themselves. Well it's easy because the angles perceive to change. They do. It looks uh, different standing up yeah. than it does over the table. I know we teach the fatal flop. Yep. And, and, uh, we talked about that. Oh. So yeah, I, I, it's a regular part of our course. Um, not aiming system as much as how do you aim and where does a good aiming system start and it starts in the standing position back behind the cue ball to your target. Now at that point each aiming system has a little bit different uh, nuance in there that, that might change something but essentially it starts way back. There you go, see thing two. Yeah. Alright, for the one minute pool instructor I'm Scott Lee. And Randy G. And uh, we'll talk to you next week about the cradle. All right, and we're back, and I'm uh, got my illustrious co-host, Mr. Uh, Mark O'Cantrell. <laughs> We've changed your name to Irish, Mark. Sorry. You're uh, you're the O'Cantrell for this week. Why are you? Um, you know, I would have to be, uh, let's see, uh, David David McBond. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what, what if you were a Jewish Irish? You could be Gold Bond. Oh, I could be Gold Gold Bloom Bond. Yeah, they're Gold Bond. Goldberg Bond. That would be awesome. All right, so anyway, this week we're doing a tribute to the Irish. We're talking about uh, the influence that they've had. Uh, not only in American sports, but uh, specifically in uh, the American pool and billiard realm, which is, you know, it's been quite a bit, to be honest with you. Um, I'm a little bit Irish. I have a couple of uh, Hennigans in my family tree. Are you Irish at all, Mark? Well, I've got this plaque up in my house that goes through my name and my lineage and where I came from, I guess. Originally, it was an Irish. It came through Ireland, so I guess there's some in there. I guess uh, you know. I like coffee from cabbage and whiskey, so <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so got at least, yeah, you got to have the the gene in there if you like the Irish whiskey. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, well, I've been to Ireland a number of times, and uh, you know. Wonderful place, wonderful people for the most part. Well, you stay in the south, the Northern Ireland people seem to not particularly care for English folks. So yeah, um, yeah. I think it's got better since I was there twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah. And there's always somebody uh, pissed off in Ireland. That's just the way they are. <laughs> I had an Irish grandfather that was, you know, he was always drunk and he was always pissed. So that was just. I think that's just goes with the territory. Um, well, you know, the, the, you know, you're talking about. I, I don't. I can't really speak too much for American pool and billions, as far as the Irish are concerned. Um, but as far as Q sports go, 
you know, there's a, there's a number of uh, notables that have come out of Ireland. There's Dennis Taylor, but that's snooker. You know, I'm talking about yeah, snooker now, sure. but it's still few sports. Dennis Taylor won, I think it was in, in the marathon, uh, one of the greatest snooker um, or acoustic matches you'd ever want to see. Uh, one of the greatest comebacks ever happened. Uh, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, the 1986, 1986 World Embassy Champion, Snooker Championship, between Dennis Taylor, who was the Irishman, and Steve Davis. Hmm. And what a cracker. I mean, it all it opened up. I mean, Steve Davis, after the first, just the big sessions, uh, it was, uh, I think it's a race to 18 or 17. After the first session, there's supposed to be four sessions. It's 7 nil up, 7 0 up. And it looked like it was all over. And man, he came back. He came down by two, three in the morning. Came down to the final frame, and they were tied. They were on the hill. After all this time, they're on the hill. And I won't spoil it for anybody who doesn't know. But man, live! I, I tell you what, what great play Dennis Taylor was. Does a lot of announcing now with the World Snooker. And mm-hmm. um, then obviously there's Alex the Hurricane Higgins, the, the People's Champion. Uh, do you know much about him? Ed? No, no, I do not. No, I don't. You ever heard Alex Hurricane I have heard the name. I just don't. I don't know that much about him, to be honest with you. During the eighties, when uh, we talked about the show before, it's called "When Snooker Ruled the World." Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it's a series on YouTube. I think it's like ten uh, part series. There's a lot of uh, things to do with Matchroom on there and how they created the characters for each player. Steve Davis was boring. Tony Mayo was Italian, so that made sure he cried a lot. And, you know, everybody had a, a, a bit like the WWF, but the game was actually real. Yeah. But everybody yeah. had a character. But Alex Higgins was one of the most flamboyant. I mean, you couldn't te- he couldn't teach how he played pool. It just... It's like a trailer, uh, a hurricane going through, a, or a tornado going through a trailer park. <laughs> Nothing looked right about it. But he'd make the most fantastic, crazy shots and just smash the reds up, open them up. But first the rule, you're not supposed you, to. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that, right? You just smash them open and say, let's go for this thing if we're going to do it. Uh, he also had his uh, temper tantrums. Uh, a lot of people compared him with Earl. Uh, Earl Strickland, mm-hmm. had his temper tantrums, uh, drug addiction, alcoholic. And in those days, they used to sit at the table, and sometimes one of the sponsors might be calling Black Label, which would be a uh, a, a brewery, you know, it's like being sponsored by Budweiser or something like that. And so they would sit there, and, and Embassy was the manufacturer of the cigarettes, like J.P. Morgan uh, would be. And so they were encouraged to sit at their table. You know, it's not up and down like pool. Sometimes you sat in your chair for a while when you play snooker, and they were encouraged to smoke and drink. Yeah, right. While they were there. Well, Alex Higgins, you know, everybody had a, a right to do it. He just took advantage of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he would just get wasted. <laughs> wasted. And. Uh, one occasion he headbutted a referee. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not condoning <laughs> that, but it's kind of guy he was. And he had to pee, and, you know, they had decorative, you know those decorative trees that you have, uh, maybe in your house that 
sat around as like a fake tree yeah. on the side. Uh-huh. Well, he had to pee, and he just decided he was going to go pee in that <laughs> plant pot that the thing was in. Uh, um, well, Mark, but, you know, Rex the richest kind of guy. Everybody kind of loved the craziness about it. It's supposed to be a tribute to Irish people, man. <laughs> not the. I, I'll tell you what. Not the degradation. God bless him. He, you know, he's, he's dead now, but he probably still has more fans than most others who could play that ever lived. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. Because he, he was the people's champion, so it's a tribute to him. Yeah, well, that's true. And then, I, then you got Karen Core, then. You know, oh, that's uh, the only other. That's right. The only Irish pool player I can think of. Oh, you know who else is Irish? Uh, I think you might know this person, Marianne Starkey. I was talking about good pool players. <laughs> uh oh. Oh, she's gonna kick <laughs> your. She's gonna kick your ass. I'm just telling you that. No, it's actually I mentioned her because she's Irish, and you can tell she's got red hair. But she, uh, her birthday is tomorrow. So I'm slipping in the opportunity to give her a, a shout out for her happy birthday too. So, love, happy love birthday, her. happy birthday, Marianne. Now you're old. You can be old like the rest of us. Um, anyway, I for some reason, because you don't know anything, sometimes <laughs> that you were going to say Cicero Murphy was Irish. <laughs> I get the feeling that <clears throat> he was in Northern Ireland, right? He was from Northern Ireland. Is that isn't that correct? I, I, I Cicero Murphy. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I, I have no idea. I thought he was American. He just had a last name Murphy. I know Murphy, right? Mick Murphy. That's uh, you know, I know that's silliness. So I'm I'm trying to be serious here. Don't screw up my show, man. We're uh, talking about the uh, uh, <laughs> we're talking about the Irish influence. The information, man. I know this is very valuable information. Speaking of information, uh. There is a fantabulous book on this subject uh, by the author, by an author, an Irish author, no less. Uh, and oh, I'm gonna screw the title up. It's um, ooh, dang it! Now you made me forget it. the The author's name is Patrick Redmond, and he wrote a book about ah, shoot. The title is something to the effect of uh, the Irish influence on sporting America from 1835 to 1920 something close to that I'm sorry Patrick for screwing up the title of your book but it's a really it's a really awesome um, uh, outline of what was going on in the early United States as far as organized sports were concerned of all kinds and how heavily uh, the Irish were actually involved in all of that it just seems to be part of the culture they were sporting. They are sporting men. They are sporting people. So, um, I, I think boxing was oh well, yes, at, yes. A, at the time. You know, by knuckle fighting, I think absolutely was a big deal. Was a big deal. That might have been seriously. That might have been the first uh, quote unquote mainstream as far as uh, sports. You know, things that people would pay attention to the fighters. And the Irish are all about the fighting and the boxing and, and everything else. And if you've ever seen the movie Gangs of New York, you know that they were all about that. And they that kind of bled into the Irish being involved in law enforcement 
uh, even to this day in Chicago, there's a heavy tradition of Irish and the police force. Um, and then, of course, later, a little bit later, um, now we're talking 1800s, a little bit later, they were also heavily involved in the formation of baseball, believe it or not. At one point, I think there was something like two-thirds of all the teams, uh, either National League or American League, were managed by or led by Irishmen. Uh, so they've always had, you know, big influence in that. Uh, there's also what they called back in the day, they called it pedestrian sports, which is more like your athletic stuff, your running and track and field and that kind of stuff. Iris were heavily involved in all that. But more so than anything else, and the reason why we're talking about this today, was their their involvement in billiards, obviously, uh, and the development of uh, in the United States. It, and there's some things, Mark, I just want to explain to, to in case you didn't know this. The reason why we play on the type of table, American tables, that we do right now is because of Irish, Irishmen, uh, specifically Michael Phelan and another gentleman that you might have heard the name, Hugh Collander. Um, Collander, you would have heard his name from the Brunswick Balk Collander Company back in the day. Phelan um, was an Irishman and his father had gotten into the billiard hall business and Phelan got interested in it because of his father. And uh, at one point, after his father died, he decided he was going to sort of stick with it. And at the time, though, there weren't really any particular standards in the United States as far as what tables should look like, how big they should be. I mean, there was their tradition of playing on a 12-foot table or what have you, but the cushion quality was all over the place. The cloth quality was all over the place. The pocket size was all over the place. So he was really the first guy to ever set out to standardize all of this stuff. And now you're not you're not taking this from that Guinness commercial, right? Oh no, no. <laughs> I you've seen that. You've seen the the Guinness commercial with the how the pool ta- table was invented. Yeah, yeah. They just off. There's no rails on it, and no parking. So they start hitting the balls, and they'll fall off the table. Uh, yeah, so I always put some. Picks up around the side and exactly that one break. Absolutely, no, that's hilarious. Yeah. Commercial, it's completely fictitious, but it's hilarious. I, 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 I thought you, I thought you'd gone by that and used that <laughs> as material. Yes, that's my, that's my. It's, it's on the big bibliography page. You can see that that I made a reference to the Your research. Okay, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, Phelan was. Uh, um, he 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 really. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating because this is all documented. He redesigned the American billiard table. Some of the things that he put he built into the table we still use to this day. It's because of him. The diamond markers and the rails, because of Phelan. Uh, the uh, angled cut of the pocket of the cushions at the pocket, unlike the snooker table where it's rounded at the pocket. He was the first person to cut them at an angle, for a specific reason. Uh, we still, obviously, we still do that to this very day. He was the first person to write a book in America on the subject of billiards and set out all what we considered standard tournament rules, etiquette rules, 
you know, things that you should and shouldn't do, tips on how to, everything from how to pick cues and balls to everything, all about this failing guy. And then uh, Hugh Collender comes along and marries his daughter. So now Phelan and another Irishman, Hugh Collender, they're in business together and they published the first magazine on the sport of billiards. Um, I mean, actually, he started Phelan, started the first Billiard Congress and Players Association in America. He was responsible for, for organizing the first state billiard tournaments in America. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on and on with this guy. So, um, well, is there any information you have that tells us why it changed from a twelve-foot table to down to a nine-foot or eight-foot table? Whatever table it was that they went with at the time, was there a reason? Was it purely convenience? Because you know, in Ireland, people didn't have big houses or big places. Right, right, it, right. What was? Do you have any idea on that? Well, there was a it, it was a couple of different reasons. Uh, it part of it was like you said the the size issue. Uh, you know, twelve table twelve foot tables were freaking gigantic, and then they stayed that way for a long, long time. That it it was a combination of the of the space involved and the cost involved. So you had these bar owners, pub owners, hotel owners. They wanted to be able to accommodate more. More tables, more space, blah, blah, blah. So they were cutting them down. Now, the 10-foot table wasn't even standard and probably until mm, about the 1870s. Everything prior to that was all played on on 12-foot tables. Um, I want to say that it was about, oh gosh, 1879 ish when they finally standard, like they called the standard for billiards a 10-foot table at that point. And there was for no other reason than just space. They just wanted to be able to, to fit more of them in there. Um, as a matter of fact, it has been suggested that Phelan cut the corners uh, on the cushions to make shot to accommodate shot making to make it easier. So I feel like that might have had something to do with it too. Between the space issues, uh, the price of the the table being that big, and watching people bounce balls around gets a little boring after a while. So I think they wanted to shrink it down just to create more action too. I think that was also another part of the equation, but nonetheless, uh, an interesting point to throw in there was that Phelan, uh, and Colander, both Colander, both were considered defectors from Ireland and on different occasions, they tried to go back to visit their family and or to do whatever they were doing. And they were both threatened uh, with their lives if they, they did so. So they, uh, they were basically stuck in the United States after that point. <laughs> they were not welcomed back. <laughs> you know, but there was conflict that's, uh, then. That's, that's something right there, though. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't know where things you know where they come from and you hear uh, rumors I don't know I'm, I'm sure I know you like all the history and, and things like that and you do a lot of research on things so I don't doubt what you're saying is true mm. uh, but you know there's always 
you know, one thing or another that how did this game actually start? Because I think, yeah. and I, I'm pretty sure I'm right, like Louis the Fourteenth, they were playing a form of billiards yeah. during Louis the Fourteenth's time. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yeah, it goes With the wings back. on and Marianne Antoinette and all that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and here to to touch on that same subject, there was something I forgot to mention, too. Uh, when the tables used to be that big, when they were big, fat, 12-foot tables, uh, as you can imagine, if you've ever seen one, the frame of the table is very square. The body of the table is very square. And the legs are at the corners and right along the sides. And it came to be understood that that's a bit of a problem when you're trying to get your body close to the table. You got the, the actual frame of the table and the legs of the table getting your way occasionally. Collinger was the first person to build a table that the frame actually beveled in underneath it. Do you understand what I mean by the bevel? The 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 edges of the well, table. Yeah, so there's, there's leg room, there's legs, and then right. there's space underneath, and it goes it, down at an angle. So right, that, exactly. You know, it right tilts inward. Up against it. Absolutely. Tilts inward so that you've got more leg room around the outside of it. <laughs> he was the first person to ever build a table like that. These two guys, like I said, they they developed so many things on the table that, we, that still are followed to this very day. Um, I don't think a lot of people understand, like you said, where some of this stuff originates. Um, and right along with that origination thing, um, when Foley, or excuse me, when Phelan started organizing all of these original uh, state championships for the first time ever, two things of note. This was the first organized championship of any sport in the United States. This is the first time that any championships of anything had ever been organized. So you got to give them credit for that. What year, what year are we talking about here? About 1865 um, or so. Um, maybe a couple of years earlier. I think they started right, I think they started organizing it right around 1863. And then by 1865 there were several states that had state championships. And failing. So you're, you're not saying that's the only time, first time they started playing any kind of sports. Oh, or no. Actually organized. organized, exactly. With with a system of, you know, qualifying up to a championship with, with, the, with the champion being crowned type of a thing. You know, you had local contests of all kinds, but we're talking about, you know, something on a bigger scale, basically. Uh, and also at that point in time, I mentioned before, the rules were kind of abstract. You, there was different games that people played. There was not one particular game that people played for the championship. So you might have this guy wins that, but that guy wins that. You know, so it was an organizational period in the United States for billiards, and the Irish were out, you know, leading the pack through all of this. And uh, matter of fact, the it I mentioned baseball earlier. Um, the first state champion of Illinois was a man by the name of Thomas Foley. He was an Irishman. And he went on later to be heavily involved in baseball. And he formed what would become the Chicago White Sox. At that time, it was called the Chicago White Stockings. And uh, 
they he formed the team with a partner or two of his, and they ended up deciding to make that Chicago was so big and so heavily involved in baseball, they decided to make another team, another major league team from Chicago. So he sold that team to gentlemen by the name of Comiskey. Um, those in Chicago will know that name from Comiskey Park. Um, he sold the Chicago White Stockings to Comiskey, and he started another team called the Chicago Cubs. So Foley... I got some information. Yeah, you know, Foley had everything to do with the Cubs and the White Sox, and he was the first state billiard champion. Sorry, go ahead. I've got, I've got some information on the Cubs. Huh, okay. Do you know that the last time that the Chicago Cubs <laughs> I know where you're going with won this. the World Series, <laughs> women were not allowed to vote? Yeah, what was that, like 1908, I believe it was? I, I I really don't know. I just know the fact that women were not allowed to vote the last time. <laughs> this club is one of the little series, which I think is kind of depressing, really, for Cubs fans. It, it is. It is. However, if you saw the Back to the Future series of movies, it is predicted that the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year. It's also predicted that I have a flight and a skateboard as well. Babe. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so <laughs> sorry, I blow holes in your uh, theory there, but hey, if you want to get back to the Irish guy, that's fine. I know. Well, I'm going to go back to the Irish guy, Thomas Foley, the founder of the Cubs and the Stockings. He was a huge fan of Michael Phelan. He was such a, like, he considered Phelan a hero, so much so that he named his only son Thomas Phelan Foley. And when he opened his new billiard hall, he had, besides curtains or drapes and marble and mirrors and Brussels carpets and all kinds of beautiful chandeliers, he had life-size portraits of his best buddy, John McDevitt, another Irishman, and Michael Phelan painted on the wall in his billiard hall. Like, he had portraits of them painted on his wall. He was that much of a fan of them. Like these guys uh, were very much Irish and very loyal to their fellow Irish brethren, as you might call it. I need to do some research on Michael Phelan because I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure... A gentleman named Michael Phelan broke into Buckingham Palace <laughs> that might in uh, the eighties or early nineties. Got in, found the Queen's bedroom, and went and sat on the Queen's bed at night time with her, talking to her. I mean, he's an intruder. Don't be there. Security should have stopped him, everything, nothing. Wow. And uh, I guess you have panic buttons and things like that. Um, but, yeah, he, he, he got in there and she, she couldn't get to the button. <laughs> and she was just being nice and polite to him. And he wanted to tell all, all these problems with Ireland and everything else. Oh, wow. Uh, but I think his name was Michael Phelan as well. Yeah, I did not um, know that. I, I, I can double check. Either that is an IRA and he bombed somebody. Yeah, the IRA. That's too funny, man. 
the IRA has been around for a long time. They really have too. Um, well, anyway, so I got some other cheesy information I had to throw at you. Uh, there was, um, well, it has to do with the Irish dominance, and <clears throat> there, this is leading to something, so you have to humor me, humor me for just a minute here, okay? Um, at the turn of the century, well, towards the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, the Irish dominated a lot of baseball and a lot of billiards. Um, if you are a fan of history like myself, you might recognize the names of um, McDevitt, Michael Foley, Michael Geary, John Deary, Joseph Dion, Maurice Daly out of New York, Ed McLaughlin, Daniel Gavitt, Thomas Gallagher. But one name will stick out to the fans of uh, 14-1 straight pool. The inventor of that game, also an Irishman. Uh, they typically refer to him as the inventor of the game. It was more like a co-inventor. His name was uh, Jeremy or Jerome uh, and I don't even know how you pronounce it properly. Is it Keo or Ko? One of the two. It's K-E-O-H. So he was also the inventor of the, the 14-1 game as we know it today. Also can be contributed to an Irishman. What do you know about that? So, it's pronounced, I believe it's pronounced Cog. Ah, uh, Cog? Cog, maybe? Yeah, Cog. Like a, at the end, uh, cock. Cock, really? Uh, but I, no, I didn't know that. But that's interesting. Yeah, well, I didn't know that's how you pronounced it. It's a good thing I didn't uh, say that in the wrong building. You know, you could be taken the wrong way. So, <laughs> <laughs> cog. It's, 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 you know, you have a, a couple of drinks in you. I mean, it can come out either way. And yeah. I'm sure he got so a special of uh, probably so uh, ribbon about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, man! That's funny stuff. Well, anyway, well, that's, a, that's a good history lesson. Actually, I didn't know that about fourteen one. I didn't know what uh, what kind of uh, influence the Irish had. I thought that Karen Cole was the only one, and Dennis Taylor and Alex Hagan. I thought they were the only ones that had any kind of influence. But I'm sure you go up to Boston. You know, I mean, those those people are fanatical about being Irish. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I, I, I know. I'll bet you there's a a lot of great pool players that have came out there that we just don't know about. Sure, sure. You know, sure. Um, it's because like, the names don't always have to be McCallaghan. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Exactly. To be Irish. Exactly. This is very true. Uh, this is but, very true. Well, and here's the. the are you gonna uh, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, here's the question that this was all leading up to, though. You know, um, there was a distinct period in time where the Irish were dominant in a lot of American sports, and billiards being one of them, baseball, and et cetera, et cetera. But then there was also a sharp decline as the population grew and became sort of more integrated with all these different, um, you know, uh, Origins of races from different, you know, Germans and Poles and blah, 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 blah. So it, their reign sort of got watered down and, blah, you know, different for different reasons. Uh, it was not necessarily one particular group of people that was dominating in any one thing. However, it's almost like we have a, a similar 
similar sort of situation now where um, can you put your finger on one particular nationality or one particular country that dominates in a lot of different skills as far as sports is concerned? Two things jump out at me. Can you name the two countries I'm thinking of? You're talking about sports in general, right? Well, sports in general, but whatever it is that it includes billiards. It includes billiards. Uh, You've got to go. I think at this particular time, the Philippines. Right. And I want to say Taiwan or China. But I'm, you know what I'm gonna say? I'm gonna say I can even pinpoint it down to uh, Yorkshire, England, and I'm not saying that because that's where I'm from. <laughs> but I'm saying it right now because we York, West Yorkshire and Lancashire, which is the next county across, could feel the top of the range of Moscone Cup team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a toss That's the only reason I'm saying that area. Yeah. I could pinpoint it down that far. I mean, we're talking about sure. know, 100 miles. Right. No, I hear what you're getting at. And, and I can't say that I disagree with it. Uh, however, um, you know, the... the you got it. Well, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. It, it's... If you... if And I'm, this is not an easy thing politically to do. But it, let's just say Asia. Because you could include China, Taipei. That's not a country. You said you said a country. Okay. All right. Then let's okay. Then let's Europe. let's talk about China. Then let's just say Chinese. Let's say China. Don't you think that they have strong skills in China? I mean, at a lot of different things, not just billiards, but that's one thing that they do accelerate at too. Uh, the Philippines. You're right. Um, Eh, I don't know. I guess I don't like all you, uh, uh, you European people. So. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, you say China, and it it almost leads you into sounding racist. I know, and, and I don't mean it like you, that. I know, I don't mean it like that. I don't no, know. no, I'm not saying you, but you, you lean into that, and I go, you know what? They kick ass in spelling bees every year. <laughs> Oh, I didn't even. It's not even that. They're fucking geniuses. That's, I mean, if it's racist, it's racist in a good way. Then, then just fucking geniuses. They are driven. Work ethic. Right. They are uh, driven people. As far as sports go, they're not really good at anything that's um, brute strength. They're not. They're, they don't. Re, 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 uh, remade on my own comments. Right. Kick ass at ping pong. Um, gymnastics, they seem to do real well. Um, Skill sports. And, and, and I think they're pretty good at pool. You yeah, know? absolutely. And not so much, and I, again, I'm not going to try to make it a racist issue, but I, I think it's more about the, the, the standard physique. They're, you know, I mean, they're not known as tall, bulky people, so they're not going to be football yeah, players. Yeah, they're going to be crap at high jump. You know what I mean? Right, right. They're not going to be. High jump team. They're not going to be rugby players or football players, but you know, put them on a billiard table. Mm, you know, you got. Well, and like I said, between that and they're driven, 
not only with pride, but with honor. And so they work very hard at anything that they do. So it's it's almost like you got to be awesome at it or just don't embarrass yourself kind of a thing, you know. But uh, yeah, so that just I, I, I makes that. me wonder why, you know, why at, any, why at any point in time does any particular country or nation dominate something more than another? It's impossible to say, uh, oh, well, it's genetic or, oh, it's just this race of people or whatever. That's not, that can't be possible. What makes a particular mindset happen where they want to pick something in particular and, and take it to the extreme? Is there a reason why this happens? You, you know, you, you're on a point. You're on something. Yeah, you're on something because they, you're right, they don't just settle right. for what they've got. Uh, mediocrity or I can get by just doing this. Uh, this sound, it just sounds bad the way I'm saying it. I'm not being any of No, I know what you mean, body. though. I know, I know what you mean, though. I know exactly what you mean. It's not that. But let's just look at eight ball, okay? Look at eight ball. Look how we play eight ball over here and in America and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Look at Chinese eight ball. Oh, it's yeah. like... They took it up another notch. It's difficult to play. Did That's what go, I mean. Hey, you know what? We play this game. We're kicking ass at it. You know? So how can we make this game harder? Right. Exactly. And... So we can really challenge ourselves, and that's maybe something that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hasn't happened here. And that that sounds like I'm putting down American spirit or whatever, but I just think it's a mindset. No, it is I, a I, mindset. And there's and you have and you've got something. You're on to something there too that I want to make a comment on. And there's always this, at least as far as I can tell, there's always resistance to people tweaking the rules and changing the games and stuff like this. You know, people, when they get wrapped up in the pool, uh, especially Americans, they get very um, defensive about the type of game that they like to play and how it should be played. Now, here's the point. Just like you said with the Chinese taking it up a notch with, uh, with the Chinese eight ball, that was the way all games were developed, all billiard games came about like that every um, every single one came from something before it and they were constantly looking for reasons to make it harder or more interesting for either the players or the fans so you know 14-1 nine ball eight ball all of these games all originated as something else that got changed into something either harder or faster or uh you know like i said more interesting to watch as the case may be so on the one hand, I can completely, completely understand somebody saying, oh, we don't need a new game. We don't need another game. We don't need another game. You don't need to do that. Yeah. Well, I can get I get it. However, what in the world's wrong with taking a game like 8-Ball and making it five times as hard by slapping snooker pockets on there and making them smaller? You know what I mean? What's really wrong with that? If that jacks the skill level up, because if you jack the skill level up, then everybody knows it's just that much harder. And when you can excel at something that, that is that much harder, doesn't that earn you more respect as a player, having the ability to well, do that? Well, and here we, here we go again. I know I'm going to hear it from somebody at some point on this. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you're leading me in this direction or not. Yes. But 
Here's the thing. I know personally many top professional pool players. I'm not saying that to someone who look at me, I know these people, you don't. I'm not saying it's that. I'm saying that as a qualification to what I'm about to say. If they're gambling and they want to play for money against somebody, they want, or, or even in tournaments, the best of the best want the tightest tables that they can possibly get. Right. And the reason they want that is because it separates the men from the boys. Right. Exactly. They wanted a bigger table and, or tighter pockets. Absolutely. And then they go to China and go, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Chinese eight ball in the fucking joke. Yeah. You be careful. So yeah. Be, care- that, but in a be fucking careful joke, what you wish for. Exactly. Exactly. Be but, careful what you wish but for. But then again, you know, you've got people like, uh, who want it? Darren Appleton. You yeah. know? So we can't say it's just a Chinese. It's back to my... Uh, West Yorkshire theory that mm-hmm. the uh, Yorkshire lads can put a, a couple of racks together. Mm-hmm. I'd like to put a team together from Yorkshire Ooh. and Lancashire. That would be interesting. And and, cha- and challenge Moscone Cup style and challenge anybody. Just just from that 100-mile radius, mm. I'd like to challenge anybody to, to be yeah. I'd have to figure out how to do it and come up with some funds. <laughs> but I think that you can field one of the greatest teams on the planet to play eight ball or nine ball or ten ball that you than you that you're gonna find mm. around. And I don't know why he's coming from that area. We talk, just talked about the Chinese. Why is I, is it because of being playing on those Chinese eight ball tables? And when I, I I guess when I first came here, when I first came to America twenty five years ago, I guess. Um, the guy who was employing us, who sponsored our visa and everything that we were going to be on, owned a couple of bars, and he said, come on, let me take you to one of the bars, and we'll play some pool. Well, I all I'd ever played was snook. I never played pool. It was I, The pool was the game that the people who couldn't make it at snooker played. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I was a little... No, I, I mean, that's oh. it's sad to say, but it was like an elitist attitude that sure. snooker players are better than pool players. And on those little bar tables, big pockets, big balls, I couldn't miss. I didn't miss to get shaped. I was just knocking them in from everywhere. People stood there going, man, I can't believe this guy. He's, so, he's, a, he's amazing at this. <laughs> and maybe that's what these guys grew up with, and it's just set that standard, that high standard. I tell anybody... Right. You want if you if you get access to a twelve foot snooker table, do real it. one, do it, do and it. And you're going to a, a tournament the next day. Play on it for two hours. Go to your tournament. Yeah, everything's going to be like a hanger. Absolutely, absolutely, man. It's like wearing it's like wearing leg weights or, or Earl's mm-hmm. arm weights or something. When after you take them off, when you get off that big table, go to a bar box, man, and have the time of your life knocking balls in because it's just. Night and day, night and day, absolutely, man. But I think you're right, though. I think, well, I don't, it's not that you're right. I'm not going to admit that you're right. <laughs> it's the fact that you've made a, a good point, though, that what I believe happens is that it's a cultural phenomenon where these this culture of excellence pops up. And now what stems, you know, why it starts, I don't know. But at some point, 
it's like Notre Dame football. You know, these people would literally walk out in front of a train to win Notre Dame football. Sometimes there's just something happens that people get their heads so wrapped up in that they can't have, they will not accept anything but excellence. So it might be that your special place over there in, uh, in uh, you know, the UK, maybe they've just got that going on right now where they just, everybody wants to have that under their belt as being good at this. Like in the Philippines, for example, or in China, for example, where that's a badge of honor if, it's, if, it, if it means something to the people around you. Obviously, you know, I could do the same thing in the United States, but if nobody admonishes me for it, then what, what the hell do I care, you know, if nobody cares? So I think that might be what it is, that when you create a culture that, that um, respects excellence at something – then that's going to be the key to creating top players, and no matter what the game is or the sport is or whatever the case may be. And, and for whatever reason, like in, in, you look at the United Arab Emirates, China, Thailand, um, the Philippines. I, I don't know if I can count the Philippines as much, but some of these countries have got some money and they've gotten enthusiasm in the game, which makes them put more money in. Right. And part right. of the reason why. There's so many unknown Filipinos out there. There's, there's kids yeah. of 15, 16 years old in the Philippines and China that will rob. Oh, yeah. They will wipe your nose. The top <laughs> that we call, people that we consider top players right. all day long. All day long. But there's money in it. And exactly. so... If there's money in the game, compared to their standards, maybe their standard level is, you know, lower. You know, the, the economy is a little different. And then winning 5000 is like uh, a year's wage or something like that. Right, right, right. right. And, and so we don't see that much over here because <coughs> they can stay over there and win 5000 and winning a year's wages by winning one tournament. Right. And they could be rich and undercover. And then all like the Coe brothers, uh, they came over. Um, you didn't hear a whole lot about them. And, uh, until it was too until late. Until the last couple of years. <laughs> right, until it was too late, until, and, until you were getting and they, beat. And then they come over, and they're like, oh, Coe brother, oh, two brothers named Coe. Um, where they're from Thailand, I think that's where they're from. Uh, and they're just shooting life out. They've mm-hmm. been gambling. Mm-hmm. They've been... On the high pressure, on conditions that are just terrible, mm-hmm. and, and having to do it, and they've and they've done it, and then brought here all of a sudden. There's the U.S. Open, and they're all uh, Mark Griffin's uh, CSI uh, invitational event, and they're just wow. Yeah. The tables level. <laughs> the, yeah, the, right. It's not clappy. It's not ninety percent humidity in here. Yeah, there's not bl- bugs flying around the lamp and stuff. Yeah. yeah so no, no. And, and so it, obviously, uh, like you said, it goes back to they've been playing with weights on their ankles. Yeah. Running running a marathon with weights, and all of a sudden they've got ideal conditions. Oh so, yeah. I don't. I, you know that's a. We can, we can go on about there's some more right, people sure, adapt sure, for, sure, forever sure. on uh, the different uh, countries, I think. But at the end of the day, 
Are you having corned beef and cabbage on is it Tuesday? Oh, I'm about to. Yeah, I'm get well, not corned beef. I can't do the corned beef, but I am a brisket eating fool. That's my favorite absolute favorite piece of beef is a, is a brisket. And as my Irish grandpa would do, we will smoke that sucker for, you know, 14 hours and then just eat until we can't wait until you can't stand up. So um, definitely going to be some uh, some Irish food going on on Tuesday. And with that, I will wish all of you guys a happy and healthy St. Patrick's Day. And uh, props to all of you Irishmen out there. Raise a glass to you there. Click. And uh, you guys have a great weekend. Mark, thanks for being on the show. And we'll talk to you again next week. Take care, you guys. Shift into gear, shift